Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, um, just a minute, I'm gonna read uh, Romans 20. So Paul's gone on three missionary journeys. If you look at the map up on the um, screen, gives you a picture of the third missionary journey. Now on the third missionary journey, he goes back to all the places he's already been. Why would he do that? Because the church is brand new, right? He's left elders in every place that he's gone to nurture the church, but they're young, they're fledging. Not only that, they're, they're oppressed, they're under um, danger. And so Paul wants to go and strengthen all the churches. And then when he gets to Corinth, uh, it's a port city, he's going to um, get on a boat and he's gonna go back to Jerusalem where he knows uh, his life may well be ended. Um, however, when he gets all the way around to Corinth, um, there's a... Um, a plot discovered against his life. Uh, it's not good to get on the ship because he'll probably be thrown over the side uh, and a, a ship would be an easy place to murder him. Um, so he doesn't board the ship there and he turns around and goes all the way back the way he came, which was of course to the benefit of what? All those churches because he came back again to, to teach them and, and, uh, and pour himself into them all the way to Philippi. And then you can see even on the map, he gets on a boat down through the Aegean Sea. He comes to uh, Troas, which is uh, where we get this great uh, story in the Bible about a Eutychus, the young boy who's sitting there. Paul's preaching late at night. He gets tired. He falls out the window of the church and is killed. And Paul is an apostle and raises him from the dead. So it's one of the great warnings in the Bible, do not sleep in church. I'm not Paul, I'm not gonna step in. You know, you'll get what you deserve. So just, anyway, that's not even the subject, but I just couldn't, it's beautiful. Um, and, uh, and then when they left there, they made their way down to Ephesus, and then the other map um, you can see. Now Ephesus, Paul's been there three years, and uh, it was very turbulent, there was great riots, almost still lost their lives. Um, so maybe it's not a good idea for him to stop at Ephesus, but he wants to stop because he wants to speak to the elders of his church. Maybe it's his favorite uh, church. He has a great heart. Stayed three years there. That's longer than he stayed other places. So right past Ephesus, he pulls in this little cove uh, in Miletus, and, uh, and there the elders come about 40 miles from Ephesus down the coast, and they meet with Paul where he says goodbye to them, that they will never see him again. It's his farewell Words. It's some of the most endearing words we hear from Paul, and also um, they're the only words we hear from Paul that are addressed to an entirely Christian audience. Um, all his other talks are basically apologetic. He's speaking to um, Greeks, and, and uh, he's, he's speaking to Gentiles, he's speaking to Jews, he's speaking to people who aren't believers, aren't yet followers of Jesus, we also have uh, Paul, often uh, what's recorded in Acts is he's speaking in courtrooms, defending the faith or defending himself. He's in front of magistrates, but here he's just with Christians. It's his only address um, to just um, Christians, and we're, I'm gonna read it to you now. So stand if you're able and you're willing. We'll show deference to the word of God. 
uh, as it's read for us. I'm going to start in the 17th verse and read to the end of the chapter uh, 20 of the book of Acts. Now from uh, Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, Paul said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with uh, tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now... I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. By the way, just a little time out. Kick off Sunday, time out, appropriate. Um, this is a great verse. You know, I'm 64 years old. This is a verse to put on the mirror. This is a verse to see. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever you are, uh, how about reading this every day? I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. And the ministry, the purpose that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, that's, just not, that's not just a verse for aging pastors. That's a, a verse for anyone who's walked with Christ, right? Your purpose might be to, uh, to be a carrier of the gospel to your neighbors, to be a carrier of the gospel to your children who aren't yet walking with Jesus, to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren, right? Who knows? But your purpose every day to get up and say, the reason you've given me life, Lord, is to advance your kingdom and I don't care about my life. I don't care about uh, what, how much fun I'm gonna have. I'm not gonna spend the rest of my life playing pickleball, right? Um, I wanna finish what you gave me to do, right? Verse 25, Paul says, now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I test you this, testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, help me. 
um, to not shrink back, to say what you've given me to say. Lord, even as I make decisions while I'm preaching of what to say and what not to say and, and how to illustrate what I say, Lord, would you guide uh, every word? Would you, would you send the word forth like arrows that are going forth into the hearts of people? You know the needs of everyone in this room. And Lord, but uh, through this time that we're gonna spend together, would you encourage the downcast? Would you, uh, Lord, minister deeply to those who are skeptics, to those who struggle to believe? Would you open their eyes to see? Would you warm our hearts afresh? Jesus, we've read your word. Now we're gonna preach it. Lord, love your church in this place. Send your Holy Spirit. Teach us, change us. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So how do you feel about the church? You know, if you said to the world today, much of the world, how do you think about the church? Their answer would be easy, right? I don't. I don't think about the church. The church isn't even on my radar, right? Increasingly, that's the case. I mean, people would drive by here their whole life and never even notice that there's a church here because they don't notice that there's a church anywhere because church just isn't really on, on you know, they're, they're not, uh, they don't know anything about it, they're not checking it out, they're not drawn, they're not curious, they're not interested. How do you feel about the church? Some would say boring, some would say I gotta admit uh, I still do church, but I think it's kind of like yesterday, right? It's, uh, it's not really relevant for today, it's not, <clears throat> it's not my generation's thing. Some would say, I don't know, you know, the church has managed to discredit itself, think of the sexual abuse, scandals, um, the church is too wed to a particular political party, and the old canard would be what? The church only wants your money, money, money. Um, some people would say, I think the church is a good idea, but it's just not, it's just not a personal priority. I gotta admit, I work hard. Uh, family life, parenting, work, it all takes so much out of me. When I get to the weekend, guess what? The weekends are mine. And uh, weekend is for uh, refilling my tank and church, um, I don't know, it just doesn't fit in. Um, so I wanna ask how you feel about the church, but I also wanna ask how does Jesus feel about the church? And um, you know, we read in verse um, 28 uh, that it says, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That's how Jesus feels about the church, right? He bought the church with his own blood. He shed his own blood. It's the Holy Spirit who gives overseers to the church. It's the church of God. You see the Trinity all in that one verse. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're nuts about the church because the church has always been God's plan. When God created man and he put him together in paradise, God envisioned a future doing life with us, but we walked away from God. But God immediately came and found Adam and Eve and he provided covering for them, right? But man goes astray, things get wild. Adam and Eve have two sons that one kills the other. Can you imagine? That's not the world as God envisioned it. And then we read of a man who's um, got seven wives. That's not marriage as God envisioned it. Then we get to the Tower of Babel and man um, can't work together, they can't cooperate, they split. Um, <clears throat> God has always intended a family. He chose Abraham, right? I'm starting a new people, a new um, family. And the Bible tells that story until Jesus comes and he spills his own blood for his family. It's always been the plan of God, the church, 
the family of God, the precious bride of Jesus, the church. How do you feel about the church? So Diane and I went to dinner at a family's house a couple weeks ago, and we knew this uh, family, uh, but we'd never been in their home, and it was so delightful. Uh, their, uh, their kids um, were so much fun, so filled of life, boisterous, um, uh, cute, charming, uh, engaging kids. You know, before dinner, two of them had fell in the pool accidentally um, outside. We, we, uh, we shot baskets. We played uh, cornhole. We uh, went into their um, bedrooms. We um, saw their trophies and stuff and, and everything that was valuable. That was just great. Then we sat down to dinner. And uh, before dinner, the head of the family said, um, we have a tradition here. When we sit down to dinner, we do our Bible memory verses before we eat. All the food was there. Uh, we're going to do Bible memory. Seemed a little odd. And, uh, and uh, he said to his uh, oldest uh, child, you go first. And she um, said, I think I'll do Psalm 119. <laughs> now, those of you who laughed, uh, just acknowledge that you know the Bible. And... Uh, Psalm 19 is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It has 178 verses. And uh, I thought, all right, this is going to be an experience, but it's going to be a late night. Um, and she started ripping off verses from Psalm 119, and we were as impressed as we could be before they admitted that we'd been taken uh, behind our heads where we were seated. Psalm 119 was on the wall. Um, Honestly, um, uh, it was just, I got castigated. They said, what are you preaching about this weekend? I said, uh, Acts. They said, what chapter? I said, chapter 28. They said, that's not where we are in the book of Acts. You're skipping over the shipwreck of Paul. That's our favorite part in the whole story of Acts. You're the shipwreck skipper. That's what you are. Um, so... You know, we fell in love with the family, and that's what I want you to experience today. I want you to fall in love with the family of God. That's part of what all this stuff afterwards is about. It's eating. Most of you can manage to feed yourself. I'm not going to try to look at anybody when I say, and some of you quite well. Um, you don't need us to feed you, but it's not about that, right? It's breaking bread together. It's being together. It's getting to know each other's kids and lives and family. That's what we want um, this day. That's what we want all the time. So go with me in God's word. What happens when Paul speaks to the elders from Ephesus? The first thing we learn about the church, the family of God, the first thing we learn is it's about truth. Paul is a deliverer of truth. The church is a place where you learn truth. Paul says in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I didn't shrink from telling you anything that was profitable. Public, private, house to house. People are desperate for truth in our culture. People, truth is elusive, right? We have an election, we count up the votes, we declare a, a winner, and then all sorts of people say, no, 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 it's not true. Seems like a matter of math, but no, 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 it's not true. Then comes COVID, and even the CDC has had to announce that a lot of their directives and things they said simply were not 
true. People have a, a crisis of confidence. Where is the source of truth? No longer is the university considered a source of truth. No longer are, is the media considered uh, a source of truth. We have a school shooting in Texas and we're told what happened in this horrific, horrific event. And then in the days uh, that follow, we discover that what we are told was what? So much of it was not true uh, about what took place there. Where, where are we going to find truth? I remember when I was a kid, we, we went to the moon, right? Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and then suddenly there were people saying, that actually never happened. NASA did that somewhere in Utah, you know? Um, I just think, are you kidding? Um, where is truth? Where can we stand on the truth? The church is a place for delivering truth. One of the most countercultural things you can say today as an assertion is there is such a thing as truth. And that's what a church is to do. It's to be a place of delivering truth. Um, Paul says in verse um, 30 of, uh, of chapter 20, be on guard, right, he tells the elders, because men are gonna come among you and they're going to what? They're gonna distort the message. They're gonna twist it so it's no longer true. But what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way and the, I am the truth. Can you imagine saying that? Imagine walking in front of a group of people and saying, I am the truth. That would be the most grandiose, egotistical thing anyone could ever declare, unless it was, unless it was true, the very source of truth. What does the Bible say in Isaiah uh, chapter 45? I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. In John 17, Jesus in his high uh, priestly prayers, he prays for the disciples, just like Paul, very much like Paul here, speaking to his beloved before he dies. Jesus is praying for them in the upper room just before his death. Sanctify them in truth, he prays, because your word is truth. There is truth about God. Now, we live in a culture where people say, I don't, you know, I don't really like what you say about God. My God is this way, right? And you can't really argue with that. I mean, I can't, maybe you have created your own God. Um, but there is, there is the God we want, and then there's the God who is, right? And so we're talking about the God who is. Uh, you can't just fabricate um, God to be what you want. We call that what? Idolatry, right? You can make your own little images of God. Um, they don't have to be wood and stone. They can actually be, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, my God, well, okay, good. Well, that's your God. Let's talk about the real God, right? Um, you know, you could, you could say, uh, you know, I think of Ray Cortez, I think of somebody who in golf, he's a great putter. Uh, and, and, and I think in technology, I mean, the guy's a wizard, right? And, uh, and he has a, a fine, refined taste for bourbon. Um, the truth is, I don't drink anything at all. If I could turn the computer on in the morning, I'd dance around in circles with glee at my technological um, uh, acumen. And, uh, and the sweetest words I ever hear on a golf course is, that's close enough, you can pick that up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I invented the yips. Um, so you can't just fabricate stuff. There is a God. He's revealed who he is. We have it in the word. Paul came to deliver it, right? Not only can you not know God, unless you know the truth, you can't know yourself either. Because modern man says you're just a body. You're a body here by random chance. There is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no designer, there is no creator. You're just a body. But guess what? The Bible says you're a body and you're a soul. 
and you're made in the image of God, and you have an inherent value and worth, right? So you can't actually even know who you are if you don't know the truth. And the Bible is the truth, thy word is truth, and our culture is floundering for a lack of, of truth, right? We had a, a Supreme Court nominee recently asked the question, what is a woman? So their response was, I don't know. Now listen, every one of us knows she knows what a woman is, right? But you couldn't say that because it's politically poisonous uh, in our culture. Uh, and yet we think children must scratch their head, right? And say, I know what that is. I know what a woman is. There's adults running around saying they don't know what a woman is. Um, we need truth, the culture needs truth. That's what the church is about. This is the truth. God's word is truth. Um, give people the truth. That's what the church is about. Now what Paul says is he didn't shy away from teaching, right? I did not shrink from declaring this um, to you. Whatever was profitable to you. He was courageous, right? What does it say in verse 26 and, and 27? I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Whatever the Bible says, I gave it to you straight. You know, courage means, doesn't mean you're not afraid. Courage means that when you're super afraid, you still do your job, right? When, uh, when, when there's a school shooter, um, it's not that people should go in there who aren't afraid to deal with that. Everybody's afraid to deal with that, right? But you have to run against your fears to do your job. So it is for the pastor, right? So it is for the parent, right? We tell the truth um, even when we're afraid. Paul said um, uh, it didn't, his fear didn't stop him. What is, you know, we read about John the Baptist. John the Baptist says to King Herod, you are not to be with your brother's wife. You've taken your own brother's wife. This is wrong. They cut off his head. They cut off Paul's head too, by the way, remember? Um, that's the price, but he did not shy away. He told the truth. You know, courage is needed because biblical truth will always offend. It offends every people, it offends every culture. It's one of the ways we know it's true, it's from God. It's not cultural. It's not written by any people to reflect their values because it offends the values of every people, right? Um, to, to give you an il illustration. So what about in the Middle East? The Bible is offensive uh, where the Bible says, when Jesus comes along and says, um, love your neighbor, um, forgive those who wrong you, turn the other cheek. Are you kidding me? Forgive those who wrong you, turn the other um, uh, cheek, um, forgive people. And it has actually God on a cross making himself weak, saying, Father, what? Father, forgive these people who are murdering me, though I'm completely innocent. In the Middle East, that is highly offensive. They would read that in the Bible and they would say, that is ridiculous. That goes against all the values of our culture. Now in the Middle East, you could teach the, the sexual ethic of the Bible. No sex outside of marriage. Man and a woman, that's the only uh, appropriate venue for a sexual activity. And they would say, that is so true. That is so true. Take those same two teachings and go to San Francisco, and what do you discover? Be kind to the uh, person down. T take care of those people who have offended you. Forgive uh, the wrongdoer. They'd say, that's absolutely true, sign me up, that's my religion. But what it teaches about sexuality, they would say what? That's awful, that's offensive, that's repressive. I don't want anything to do with that, right? So you see the Bible 
offends every people in every culture in different places. That's why Christians can never be comfortable in any political party. Because whatever political party there is, whatever kind of issues have, have caused them to amalgamate together, um, you can never be totally comfortable there because there's always gonna be things about them that are contrary to the word of God, right? And we're, uh, Paul says, I can't shy away. I'm not here trying to create an audience. I'm here to give you the truth. Um, you know, um, it's so important. Uh, the shepherd must not shrink back from the truth. One of my professors in seminary wrote this. He said, we do not need mealy-mouthed, fuzzy-thinking, compromising preachers whose first thought is whether or not they may give offense either to those who hear them or to the community at large, but rather preachers whose first commitment and therefore first impulse is obedience to the Lord in whose service they have enlisted, to whom they belong, and to whom they must give an account. Um, hey, you pray for us. That's, uh, that's our passion to be just that. Um, another a mentor of mine, a pastor named Steve Brown, uh, used to say, don't you shilly-shally. How many of you know that phrase? Last night people said, never heard that phrase before. Uh, don't you shilly-shally, don't you equivocate, don't you get weak need at the moment you need to stand up, right? Don't you back off what you know is true, don't you shilly-shally. Got it? One more thing to say about um, truth. We doing good? Everybody's, okay, good. One more thing, Paul taught them publicly and from house to house to get the truth. You're not just gonna get it in large assemblies hearing somebody preach because that truth has gotta drill down. It's got to uh, really get into our thinking. It's got to be, pro and, and we get that truth when we talk about it with other people. We get that truth in small groups. We get that truth when we read the Bible uh, outside of public gatherings, and God by his Holy Spirit works to open our eyes to see it. We get that truth when we read books that people have written about um, God's word. We have, we have mentors and teachers. We, we, we get that truth when we're in a small group and we're studying together and we hear somebody share what they've learned and we say, gosh, that is so good. That's so true, I never saw that. I've read this 10 times. I've never understood that before, right? We get that truth, we're in a discipleship group, we get that truth and we're in a, a Bible class. We get that uh, truth and we discuss it over the dinner um, table. This is an unabashed call, sign up for a small group. Wasn't that good the way I did that right out of the Bible, right? To the narthex, sign up for a small group. Uh, so important. Diane and I this summer were in a town and we went to church in this town. It was lovely. And uh, then we had a boat tour we were gonna take. We're on vacation. We had it, put it in the GPS. We're motoring. We're, uh, we're having to walk there. It, uh, we're hustling because we're right on the line of making that uh, boat trip. We get there about five minutes early. We walk up to the ticket counter. We check in. We've already bought our, we pre-purchased our tickets. We are ready. And they say, you're at the wrong place. <laughs> that boat doesn't dock here. That boat docks and it's 30 minutes away. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I hate it, I hate it. it was in the, we, got the, we, got the, we got the wrong, we're following the wrong direction, right? How many people are living their life hard but they're going in the wrong direction? They haven't got truth. It's awful, you're trying your hardest but you're not, I mean we hustled to get there but it took us to the wrong place. How many people are hustling in their life? They're trying to find it, but they don't have truth. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will what? And the truth will set you free so the church is about um, 
truth. Um, all right, you got it? So important. Our culture needs truth. My word is truth. Second, um, the church is a place of grace, right? Church is to be a place of grace. You know what Paul says uh, in this to the, to the elders? He says, when I came to you, you know this. You know how I lived among you the whole time. I lived right with you. You saw it. And I came to you in weakness, right? In humility and tears and, and in the midst of trials. When Paul says um, humility, um, you know, it's different than we understand the word today. What if, I, what if a person were to say to you, frankly, I think my greatest virtue is my humility. <laughs> That's a contradiction. You don't appear like you're very humble, right? Um, when Paul says, I came to you in humility, in the ancient world, humility was not a valued um, attribute. Humility was considered to be somebody who was weak, struggling, not, you know, unable to find their footing. What does Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, right? It's almost to be, say, I was with you and I was, you know, incessantly anxious or I, or I really struggled a lot with depression. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the founder of the Christian church and he's telling them, you know, when I was with you, I was what? I was weak. I was afraid. I was struggling. What sets a person free to be that vulnerable, especially in a culture that didn't value that kind of thing at all? The gospel, grace, the grace of the gospel is the great liberator. Listen, every person is trying to achieve salvation. Do you know that? In the, in the church, we use that word, salvation. And in and, and, and religion, people are trying to achieve salvation by, um, by obeying the dictates of whatever their religion is, right? By doing it themselves, by being um, holy and righteous and obedient and, and devoted. Um, but non-Christians are trying to, uh, non-religious are trying to um, find salvation too. They, they call it something else. It, it's, it's, it's the validation of their worth, right? Everybody's on that quest want to feel valuable. One author said, the quality of my work became the quality of my worth, right? He was an author. He said, you know, when I write, if people said my writing was good, then I felt what? I felt valuable. I felt affirmed. Everybody's looking for that. We look for it in our marriage. I want uh, to be loved and affirmed and cherished, and then we look for it in the next marriage, and then we look for it in the next marriage, you know? Um, we look for it with our children. That's why it's so important that our children thrive, that our children be recognized, that our children be great at volleyball, right? How sad. Did you know my child was the most valuable player on the fifth grade volleyball team? You know? <laughs> oh, great. You're such a great parent. Um, we're all looking for our worth in our, in our kids' achievements, right? Um, in our appearance, in our bank account, in our work success. We're all trying to stave off self-loathing. But it's the grace of God that blows all that up, you know? It's the grace of God that says, you know, the truth is you're, you're worse than you've ever imagined. So your, your strategy to get worth through your performance in whatever venue of your life is deeply flawed. 
And you know, we ought to know it's deeply flawed because the most accomplished people in our world, you can make a whole long list of them, right? From Elvis Presley to Bernie Madelow to, to, to um, Kurt Cobain to uh, Anthony Bourdain. You can make a whole list of them that have killed themselves. Keith Ledger, at the very pinnacles of their career as incredible success, they had it all. Only they hated and they despised and they loathed themselves, right? The gospel says, you know, that strategy, because you're more of a mess than you've, you'll ever, that you've ever even seen. And if God ever opened your eyes to see what you truly were, it would destroy you. It's only his kindness and mercy that he lets just, you see just a little bit of your rottenness. But you know what? If you come to Jesus Christ in your rottenness, he welcomes you. And he loves you. And if you receive his, you respond to his grace and come to him and ask for his mercy, then you'll be more loved than anything in this world could offer you. If your kids were the greatest success, if your kids were healthy and thriving, and something much better than anything else will ever offer you, you'll have the love of God. It's the most beautiful thing. That's why Paul could be honest, right? He could be honest because he wasn't polishing his image. He wasn't trying to look good in front of other people. He'd abandoned the strategy of, uh, of appearance, right? Think of all the things we do to try to cultivate an image. The way we dress, the way we talk, the, way we, the kind of house we look in, how our house looks like. On and on and on it goes. What would it mean to be set free from that show, right? Um, only the gospel does that. It arouses us to be honest about our sin and weakness and failure. And this authenticity is disarming and it's attractive and you're supposed to find it in the church, Right? And we know that in a lot of churches, and we have to say even in our church, there's a lot of posturing. And only the grace of God can allow us to say, oh, you know, right? It makes me want to vomit. Let's tell the truth about ourselves. And sometimes in small groups, you know. I remember when I started to tell the truth about myself, people would come out after church and say, pastor, you're not that bad. And in their own way, they were saying, we don't want a pastor that bad. They said, Pastor, you're not that bad. You're too hard on yourself. I have to look at them and say, do you think I really told you the juicy sins in my life? I'm only skimming the surface here. If you really knew the whole truth about me, then, uh, then I'd be working at Wendy's, not be the pastor of this church. Um, and Paul does it right here. He confesses his, the Bible says two men went to the temple to pray. The religious conservatives, you know, was one of them. The other was a tax collector. And the tax collector falls on his face before God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the rotten guy. The rotten sinner falls on his face. God, be merciful to me. And the religious guy says, what? God, thank you that I'm not as rotten as he is. And God says, which one of them went home justified? Do you realize that Jesus is repelled only by self-righteousness? There are people out there who are railing on social media that the church needs to be reformed. It needs to be cleansed of its uh, wickedness. But all they do is point the fingers at other people. Nobody on social media goes and says, you know, I've looked at our world and it's awful and it's a mess. And you know what? I found out the biggest problem. I've discovered the biggest problem in the world. It's me. Nobody says that on social media. Nobody says that on Twitter. 
I am the biggest sinner I met today. I am the biggest problem politically, economically. Uh, I am the worst neighbor. I am the, nobody says that. Yesterday, someone said that to me in this church. They said, my, my daughters and I are talking and she says, you know what, dad? We're awful. We have become awful people, our family. And the dad's standing there. He's talking to his pastor and he said, she's so right. All we do is look down on other people and, and, and we are so critical towards other people. And you know what? That's so beautiful. He saw it about himself. Only the gospel allows that. Jesus loves me. I can tell the truth about myself. Not only that, he heard it from his own daughter. When you listen to your own children, and they point out your stuff, and you hear them. That's power. That's what the gospel does. I love what Philip Yancey wrote. He said, grace comes free of charge to people who do not deserve it, and I'm one of those people. I think back to who I was, resentful, wound tight with anger, a single hardened link in a long chain of ungrace learned from family and church. Now I am trying in my own small way to pipe the tune of grace. I do so because I know more surely than I know anything that any pang of healing or forgiveness or goodness I have ever felt comes solely from the grace of God. I yearn for the church to become a nourishing culture of that grace. Amen, 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 amen. So last of all then, the church, it's a place for truth. It's a place where you can be honest. Uh, because you're in the midst of some, um, some real sinners. That's all there is, you know. There's only broken people. There's no put together people. There's just broken people. There's broken people who have run to Jesus for mercy and there's broken people who won't. That's all there is. Don't be impressed by other people, by the way. If you really knew them, you wouldn't be. <laughs> you know, there's just people like you. Broken people, desperate for Jesus. So the church is a place of truth, it's a place of grace, the church is a place of what? It's a place of community, where failures all gather together. Look at what happened at Ephesus. Paul's gonna see, seeing them for the last time. What does it say? I mean, there's so much love and affection. They knelt on the beach, they prayed, they embraced, they kissed. Right? You read the first verse of the next chapter, it sounds like they had to be pried apart, you know, uh, to let Paul go. They didn't want to let him go. You know, any two people who have Jesus in common and have experienced his grace, they can be friends. Do you know that? They can be separate races, they can be separate socioeconomic levels, they can be separate levels of, of educational achievement, they can have the, the most diverse um, personal interest. They can be in different political parties, but if they both knelt before Jesus, there is a unifying love that can't be found anywhere else in the world. And that's what we're to model here. That's what the church is to be. May it be so. You know, how does this happen? How does it happen? And I, listen, gosh, you long for this culture to be true in your church of a people who love and care for each other when our church was brand new, the worst thing that happened to me that ever happened in my life, my brother, my hero, my oldest brother, he died. He died suddenly, he was 35 in, uh, in Tallahassee. 
And here I am, I'm, I'm 28 and I've got to do his funeral. And, uh, and I go up to Tallahassee and, and, and we decided as a family that we're gonna have a graveside, just private, and then we go to the church and do the public thing. And um, it's just private. Early Monday morning, we gather at the cemetery. My knees are knocking. I'm doing my own brother's funeral. I hadn't done anybody's funeral hardly at that point. I'm brand new at this. And, and I know I'm gonna have to look across the casket at my mother and not, and not completely fall apart. And, uh, and, and I am so scared. I, I don't have what it takes to do this. And we pull into that cemetery in Tallahassee, and I'll never forget it. There were two elderly families from our church, the Santanas and the Paulsons, and they got up at five in the morning and they drove all the way to Tallahassee and they, they, they knew this is private, just family, we're not gonna go down there by the grave. So they stood at the entrance where they knew we'd have to drive just so that I would see them there. And no, our young pastor is not gonna walk through ministry alone. He's young, he's inexperienced, he's frightened, he's scared, but we're gonna stand with him. Oh. If you've ever experienced anything sweet from Seven Rivers Church, where do you think it started? It started from people like that. That's what we long to be. And where did that come from? Where did they get it? Where did it come from? I'll tell you where it came from. You know what Luke wants us to see? I wish I could show it to you in all the ways. I showed it to you one little place. But, uh, but, but Luke, the writer of Acts, is trying to tell us that Paul is mimicking Jesus. He's approaching Jerusalem to die, just like Jesus did. It says in this passage, you know, just before where we started, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus uh, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, right? He set his face to Jerusalem. What, this is Luke 9 says, Jesus, when the days drew near for him to die, he set his face to Jerusalem. Paul wants us to see, uh, Luke wants us to see that Paul is walking the way of Jesus. And Paul, everywhere he goes, he has friends. All these friends here, they're weeping, they're holding on to him, they're praying for him. And Paul is... Um, um, when he went to Rome, I told you, all these people came out last week and met him and they walked with him. Everywhere he's going towards death, all his friends are around him, supporting him, loving him. What about Jesus? What happened when he walked to death? He said to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the inner circle, he said, come with me in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's the last day on earth. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be tried. Come with me. Kneel and pray. Watch with me, Right? And after he prays, he goes to where they are, and they're what? They're sleeping. And he says again, watch and pray. And they're sleeping. They're sleeping. And, and that night he's arrested, and when he's brought to trial, they all run away. And even when he hangs on the cross, he hangs there, and his father abandons him. He's all alone. Unlike Paul, he goes alone. Why did Jesus do it? So we'd have the Father, so that we would have each other, so that we would never be alone. Joanne, you were never alone. You were never alone because you had a church, because your church loves you. That's why Jesus did it. So how do you feel about the church? She's beautiful, isn't she? So flawed. So broken, I mean, how could it not be? We're in it. But so beautiful, so lovely, 
the church. Amen. Jesus, stir our hearts to be more in love with you and your people so that we'll give our lives for your bride. You shed your blood for her. You love her. She belongs to you. Lord, it's such a privilege to be a part of your family, to have brothers and sisters, to never be alone. We rejoice in it. We love it. Such a gift. You take care of us so well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.